Kings Insider Podcast on CSNCalifornia.com. Introducing your host, Sacramento Kings Insider, James Ham. Welcome to the Kings Insider Podcast on CSN Bay Area, CSNCalifornia.com. I am your host, James Ham. Joining me, my good friend and a longtime guest of the show, Mr. Sam Amick, USA Today. Also, Sam Amick of the A to Z podcast on usatoday.com. Sam, what's going on, man? James, my friend, thanks for having me. An impressive pronunciation. Good stuff, buddy. There it is. We've had a, <laughs> uh, a a bit of a snafu getting this thing off the ground and going today, people. I apologize. You, you probably have no idea what's going on, but me and Sam have been trying to get this podcast recorded for some time now. Um, but we got a lot of talk about the chaos in Sacramento just keeps coming. You know, right now they, they went five in a row. They're now one in four over the last or one in five over the last six. Uh, we've got the t-shirt issue, all kinds of chaos. Sam, what do you make of this, this mess that is the Sacramento Kings right now? Well, as we joked on take one of the podcast, when I asked you the question about the moniker on Twitter, whenever the Kings are being the Kings in various forms or fashions, people on Twitter and Kings fans seem to tweet K-A-N-G-Z, and it's just Kangs, and it, you got to assume it comes with a shrug, and it's just something disappointing. And uh, I've, I think I've said this to you, James, before on the podcast, and you know this, like none of us in the media, you don't root for any team. But I find myself at every turn rooting for Kings fans. Like, so when the Kings win five in a row, I legitimately get excited because you've seen a decade of despair from these people who are so loyal and so passionate about their team. And then all of a sudden, like you said, five in a row becomes one and four. And, and last night when they uh, – and I know this is uh, airing on Friday, I believe. But, you know, the other night when they lost to Chicago, you could get that same sense from the fans because they, they, they got a taste of – being relevant again and, uh, you know, and being in that playoff hunt. But they're kind of flirting with, I think, danger here. I think they need to seize this opportunity and try to keep winning some games here. Yeah, it really doesn't make any sense. I know George Carl is just absolutely perplexed. He doesn't understand how his team can come out and give up 37 points in the first quarter on their home floor. He's really embarrassed by the uh, the Kings record on their home floor now. It's 13-13. and 13. It's one of the best home courts uh, in in the NBA, historically, they, they've always won really well. Even during the bad years, they've won at home. And it's really just kind of shocking for everyone to see this team come undone in front of their, their home crowd. And, you know, I'll mention their home crowd, again, it was a sellout on Wednesday night against the Chicago Bulls. They've had quite a few sellouts this season. I think there's something around like 95.8% sellout on the season and it's just this weird phenomenon that this team can't get out of its own way most of the time. But that leads us to the next question. Are they buyers or are they sellers? Um, that's a very good question. I mean, before the one and four stretch, my feeling was that they mostly wanted to keep this team together. And yes, they would take calls on Rudy Gay and, if, you know, the old, kind of disclaimer from executives that if, if they can make the roster better, they'll do it. But they weren't seeming to be overly aggressive. They were just being opportunistic. But now, if one and four continues, you know, if the snowball gets bigger, I think that could change things leading up to the deadline. And we all we know the usual suspects at this point. It's Rudy, maybe Macklemore, Bellinelli, guys like that. Cousins is going nowhere and Rondo, they would love to re-sign in the offseason. So um, the, the tough part for the Kings, they had a couple of days where they were the bell of the ball in the race for eighth in the West, and they were creating some buzz. We even threw DeMarcus on the, uh, the, the front of our sports section, and I wrote a piece about all the different teams buying for eighth. But as they've fallen off, Portland has been on a hot streak. Some of these other teams are playing better. And that eighth spot where I thought 
a losing team was going to get in now looks like that's probably not going to be the case. It's going to level out over the course of the season, probably have a 500 team or a team a little bit better than that getting in. My point being, Kings are going to have to play like an actual playoff team to get into the playoffs, not just backdoor it in and be the best of the worst, which is how we were looking at it just a couple of weeks ago. You know, it. you look at Portland, they are on a run. You look at the Utah Jazz, they're getting healthy, they are on a bit of a run. But you can see that this this eight seed is so volatile still. I mean, it, you're right. It was just like a week ago that the Kings had won five straight themselves, and they had vaulted. I think they had, at one point they were a game and a half up. It almost seems like no one really wants to just grab it and steal it. And every few weeks you think, oh, this is the team, and then they fall off. Is there one team that stands out to you talent-wise that should have an advantage for that eight spot? It's probably the Kings if we're just going to talk talent for Utah. I think they're right there. Especially the tone that the Kings took in that stretch was of winning five games in a row was not only that they wanted to win or get the eighth spot, but DeMarcus in particular talked pretty consistently about moving up the chain, sixth and seventh in the West. And that's a great outset or outlook to have. Um, it, you know, Delivering on that is obviously tricky. But Utah, if you're picking the team who's had kind of this organic rebuilding process, steady improvement, a core that they're believing in and trying to get better, then Utah is probably that team. The Kings, as we all know the backstory, especially your audience on this podcast, Mm -hmm. they just went wild with the roster once Lade came to town and took that front office position. The Jazz have been drafting, building with Dennis Lindsay, who's got San Antonio Spurs roots. Uh, their GM and, and him kind of taking that tack. So the Jazz are the team that, until they got racked by injuries, it looked like they were going to be the eighth seed. But they've got Rudy Gobert back. Still don't have Dante Exum uh, and Alec Burks. But you know they, uh, they they've got a talented group with some chemistry. So I think it's going to be tough on the Kings to beat those guys. Okay, so when you look at the Kings roster, we mentioned Bellinelli, we mentioned Rudy Gay, uh, possibly Ben McLemore. Have you heard anything on these guys at all? I, I do know that, that the Kings have got a lot of phone calls, specifically on Bellinelli, of teams looking to buy low on a guy that they think is probably being used incorrectly. Uh, you know, the Kings are, are trying to do too many things with Bellinelli as opposed to just making him into the set shooter that he has been in past years. But is there anything that you've seen that is is actually real and you can sort of gauge a value for any of these players? No, I mean, you know, you've seen some chatter about the Clippers and their interest in Rudy Gay, but the Clippers just, they, you know, they gave Josh Smith back to the Rockets and they don't have, um, you know, they just don't have assets. Yeah. And so that one I kind of gloss over. Um, The Pelicans are known to have interest and what's been reported about Eric Gordon is accurate that the Pelicans were the ones pushing that envelope before Eric got hurt. They wanted to have a Gordon for Rudy swap and the Kings didn't have any interest. So that shows you right there. I mean, Eric Gordon's a pretty good player, and granted he's going to be a free agent this summer, but if the Kings are turning down Eric Gordon tights for Rudy, then they are setting that bar pretty high because let's not kid ourselves, Macklemore's done a disappointment. Having a guy who could stretch the floor and be a more productive two-guard like Eric Gordon would be great, but again, they didn't want to bite on that. So I don't know. Uh, I mean, if I'm handicapping it, I don't think Rudy goes anywhere. Uh, I don't think they want to get pennies on the dollar for him. And, and let, you know, as much as Rudy gets flack from the Kings fans, you got to go ahead and do your research and find, you know, threes around the NBA who are going to improve that position and get the Kings in a better spot to grab that playoff spot. That list is still not that long. This is still a guy that's part of the national program, has Team USA credibility, and, yes, he's, he's inconsistent and maddening to a lot of Kings fans. But, um, you know, he's not a guy that they're trying to get out the door. So I don't know what they'll do, if anything. Uh, I do – I mean, if they could just find a way to get some help at that two spot. Because the Bellinelli move, it's just too bad that he hasn't been able to recreate some of his Spurs magic. And shot selection has been questioned. And, and, you know, and and just his fit has not seemed to be as good as I'm sure they hoped it would be. Yeah, and you know everything. I Rudy Gay, he's probably still a top ten small forward in the league. I think you can look around, you can put make, you can put a list together, but he's probably right there 
around the top 10. And his month of January, shooting well over 50% from the field. He's had a couple of little ticky-tack injuries that have hurt him where he's lost four games. But uh, DeMarcus Cousins' huge month of January sort of overshadowed how well Rudy Gay's actually been playing. Uh, Bellinelli, of course, he, he just can't hit the broadside of a barn with his three-point shot. Um, you know, he's shooting around 18% over his last 10 games before the Chicago game where he kind of woke up and I think he hit three of seven. So we're seeing some positive momentum. Kings just, they've had a hole at the shooting guard spot for a while, which is really strange. But do you rob Peter to pay Paul? Do you, you know, gut your small forward position to find someone at the two? And I don't think that the Kings have an answer for that. They, they really, to me, it seems like they have to improve greatly at that position in order to make a deal. And I, I don't think they've had that offer. But still, is there a point where you see they give up on this season over the next week and a half, two weeks? Or do you think that it's still too close to call? No, I think it's still too close to call. They're right there. I think, and this is kind of a sad statement about the bigger picture of the organization and how bad the teams have been for the last decade is that they want that eight spot like nothing else. We know that. Mm-hmm. But my goodness, the fact that they're even in the conversation in early February, that's that's new territory. That has not been the case. And you know this, Dan. Yeah. A couple of years, by this point, it's just a complete lost cause. The NBA unofficially down to, you know, maybe 27 teams at this point. The Sixers are out, the Kings are out, and then pick one or other, you know, one or two other teams. And they're in the conversation. I mean, the one and four could easily become another five-game winning streak, and they'll be on their way. What they need, and in light of DeMarcus Cousins coming back into action last night with the ankle injury, they need DeMarcus to stay on the floor. They need this talent and this roster to continue playing together because when they're healthy, they're about a 500 team. That's what they are. Mm-hmm. And with the markets in particular, I think they're even one or two games above 500 at this point. So night in, night out, they will give every team in the NBA a good showing. And if you do that, if you can stay healthy, then you're going to be in the playoffs. And finding a player elsewhere to take you to the next level is not going to be easy, especially like you said before. You just, you know, you got to pay the price for that. So I don't know who that guy is. Okay, so Sam, the NBA is kind of in a a crazy, weird place right now because everyone knows the salary cap is going to jump to to 88, 89 million this summer. It's going to go nuts. Uh, I I know you've got a podcast coming up. Uh, You and Jeff Zilgit spoke to Adam Silver, and so you have some insight on this. But do you expect this to be a wild next two weeks leading up to, what is it, February 18th trade deadline? Or do you think it's going to be quiet because so many teams already have a boatload of cash this summer that they can start looking at? Yeah, I think that has quieted things quite a bit. I mean, the obvious common sense thing here is that if you are a team that does not have cap room in the following summer, then you're limited in terms of your ability to improve your roster. So you look at the trade market and you say, what can we do? That's the only means by which we're going to get something done. And you know, then you go ahead and maybe you're more active. Right now, and listen, I knew it was going to be crazy this summer. We've been writing about it, talking about it. Mm-hmm. Not until today, I crunched some numbers, and, and uh, SB Nation had a, a graph that has now been bookmarked on my laptop where they've got every single team in their projected salary cap space for this summer. You got 19 out of 30 teams in the NBA with at least $29 million in cap space. It's crazy. Which is just unbelievable it's yes unprecedented stuff part of our conversation on the podcast that you mentioned with adam silver was him admitting and this is not a secret the nba wanted to get smoothing of the cap meaning that when they cut their nine-year 24 million dollar contract with espn and turner the media deal that had this infusion of cash what they tried to get the players union to do is to have a progressive smoothing of the cap so that we wouldn't have this one lump sum spike like we're going to have and make no mistake. The NBA is not ecstatic about it. It doesn't serve their purposes of parity. It opens the floodgates and has everybody with their hand in the cookie jar free agency wise. And to your original question, it means I do think that on the trade market, there's a lot of executives sitting there saying, why am I going to give up anything on my roster right now? If I think I got a shot at this guy or that guy in the summer who could fix these problems on my roster. Yeah, and that's what, where the Kings are kind of at, especially I know there was a talk of a potential Rudy Gay for Ryan Anderson swap 
Everyone knows it. Ryan Anderson is from Sacramento. He would love to come back to Sacramento. He actually considered coming back to Sacramento a couple of years ago and the Kings signed Jason Thompson instead. But my sources inside the Kings say, why would we give up Rudy Gay when there's a possibility that we could have Rudy Gay and Ryan Anderson and re-sign Rajon Rondo? And we already have an entire roster full of players besides that. It's just the reality of this new salary cap that there's potential just to to load up this summer for a couple of teams. But then a few of these teams, they're going to have to pay some some guy who's not worth you know, his weight in gold. They're going to have to pay him a one-year deal at, at $12 million just to get up to the salary floor. This is a really strange offseason. I mean, a guy like you just wrote on a guy like Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard is 30 years old. He's going to opt out of a giant deal and hope to get more money. And I mean, he's got histories of back injuries. He's got ankle injuries he's got you know questionable heart issues not as in physical heart issues just you know whether he's really into basketball or not and here's the guy who's who's looking to get another I don't know hundred million dollar deal is that where we're headed this offseason yeah and there's a lot of I mean owners and front office guys are gonna I mean they're gonna have to show a level of restraint that they probably won't be able to they never do they no. always spend. They and that's what's gonna. I mean, the contracts this summer are gonna blow your mind. And you mentioned Ryan Anderson, and I, do I love Ryan's game? I do. The guy is one of the best stretch forwards in the game. Not known as a very good defender, but very very good player. And he would be a great fit for the Kings, I think. But he's gonna have enough of a market that. And I tweeted this a couple of weeks ago. Like it's not completely outside the realm of possibility that he's sniffing max money which is just because of supply and demand. If you want Ryan Anderson and if you have all this cap room, and just to give the listeners kind of the, the spectrum of the cap room, the Lakers have more than anybody. We mentioned $29 million for the 19 out of the 30 teams. Yep. The Lakers have $66 million in cap room. It's crazy. I mean, that's, you know, that's obviously right there around. It's as if going into this season, you didn't have any players on contract and you just built a team from scratch. So – the, the smart teams are going to still be fiscally responsible and make the most efficient use of their room. The desperate teams who just need to make a splash and can't afford to get to next season without having added a key guy or two are going to overpay out the wazoo, and I think Ryan could be one of those guys benefiting from that. All right, Sam. Well, I don't want to keep you all day. I know you're a super busy man. Uh, we can find the A to Z podcast on usatoday.com. Uh, you will have Adam Silver on the podcast. I, it, you think it's going up on Friday? So so everyone rush yeah, over. Yeah, Friday. It should be good, man. He was really good. And, and we'll have some news later. Uh, this will be out by the time your podcast comes out. But he's taking, uh, he's kind of jumping on the other side of the fence relating to Hack-A-Shack. It sounds like the days of Hack-A-Shack are coming to an end in some form. The league has decided that the entertainment value is taking too much of a hit. So, check out that story at our site and then the podcast is on itunes and soundcloud and stitcher and all those things so as always james thanks for having me man i appreciate it yeah we will be anxiously awaiting that podcast as well as plenty of other news that will be coming out soon uh with the trade deadline pending so uh, sammy thanks for coming in it's always a pleasure you got it thanks james see you buddy Welcome back to the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. I am James Ham. Joining me for the second portion of the podcast, Mr. Aaron Bruski, NBC Sports. AB, what's going on? Let's talk some hoop ball. Round ball. Let's talk round ball. Yeah, uh, special thanks to Sam Amick for dropping by. Some great stuff there. Uh, Aaron, he actually has a podcast coming out with uh, with Adam Silver of the NBA, the commissioner, the commish. And uh, this is coming out after that podcast and after their story. But Aaron, Adam Silver's taken a stand against Hackashack. Oh. <laughs> New legislation is coming. Well, you know, there's the, the stuff on the foul line and the out-of-bounds uh, plays. That's obviously got to go. And on the foul line in particular, people are going to get hurt. You don't want that liability, whether you're the league or a team or whatever have you. Uh, I don't like the idea that... You know, a bunch of writers on deadline get to drive this narrative forward that this is a truly unwatchable thing. I don't like watching it, I guess. I don't know. I'm not I just don't have an opinion on it. It, it doesn't bother me to the extent 
that it bothers writers on deadline. I feel the um, same. I, you know what? I'm on deadline, and it doesn't bother me. To be honest with you, you know what it does for me? It gives me time to finish up a story right at the end. Because well, that, you're you're able to put in all the, the finer stats and all that stuff as you're going through, and then you're just waiting for a final score, and then you sit there and you adjust, you know, free throw, you know, you adjust points and stuff on the way out the door. But I'm a kind of I'm kind of of the same opinion you are. I'm of the opinion that if you can't shoot free throws, then you probably shouldn't make eighteen million dollars. And number one, number two, you probably also shouldn't be in the game in the fourth quarter, and your coach needs to make an adjustment for your lack of ability to shoot the easiest shot in you know a, a shot that you've practiced a million times since you were a kid. And and I'll just even take it this far. There's people that go to great extents to make a case for why there shouldn't be this type of intentional fouling. And I don't care about this to the extent that I'll let them have their way. I I just want to say I just want to stop hearing people complain about this thing because it's really you should make your free throws for one. And then for two, if people are going to complain about this to the extent that we continue to hear about it on Twitter over and over and over again, I'll just give it to them. I don't care if you want to make a rule, make a rule. I actually, there was a rule I saw that I really like where if the player is in the front court, you can't do it. But if they're in the back court, you can. And I don't know how quite it would be legislated, but I would be, I think it would be funny to watch a team play four on five offensively and have DeAndre Jordan hang out at, like, say, the half-court line. He can't go into the front court because then they can intentionally foul him. And it's just, I don't know, that's obviously stupid, but I, I just don't care. That's my point. I don't care. <laughs> I, you know, I guess the other thing you could do is you could uh, you could actually give the player who's fouled one shot and a second player a second shot like a player of your choosing. So so if you get fouled, say say they foul Rondo, the first free throw would go to, say, Marco Bellinelli. Bellinelli steps up, he knocks it down. Then Rondo steps to the line. And, and you know what? It, it would reduce the, the chances of it happening because you got to remember that if you're hitting 50% from the free throw line, right, and, and over a game, not just at each possession, but if you're hitting 50% from the free throw line, that means that you're still scoring one point per possession. So this is actually not a bad percentage, just at 50%. It, it's basically, it's a better percentage shot than a mid-range jump shot, which is usually around a 40% shot. So even in the worst scenario of, like, say, DeAndre Jordan, his free throw shooting is really no worse than, than watching someone pull up for a mid-range jump shot. It's, hey, can I, it's just can like, I add just one other thing? Yeah. I think it's absolutely and patently ridiculous that anybody has any proposal for anything to change any rule when these guys, they don't try every every tool at their disposal. I want to see them shooting Rick Barry underhand free throws, you know, maybe even strap up some tidy, you know, the tidy whitey shorts from the 70s. They, they need to go to the embarrassing extent of trying to figure out this problem because they're simply saying, I don't want to look funny shooting this free throw, even if it helps my team win the game. So if the players were shooting underhand, which, you know, it's, it's a thing. Rick Barry's, you know, trying to train every player in the league on it. If they're not willing to do that, I'm not willing to change a rule. Now, again, I, I agree I with you. If, if they, I completely agree. If they aren't willing to take that next step and, and you know, dude, I hear these things that are just so ridiculous. Oh, he's got big hands. He can't, He, you know, guys with big hands are bad free throw shooters, which is, you hear that with Rondo. Uh, but last time I checked, DeMarcus Cousins has pretty big hands, and he's a very, very, very good free throw shooter. Uh, the guy with the biggest hands in the league, can we all like, it's Kawhi Leonard, right? He's a, a he's an 87.8% free throw shooter. Just work on your craft, man. Just knock it down. Figure, you're right, dude, just figure it out figure out a way to do it and do it i've heard people say about that the learn your craft part and that these guys do work on their free throw i do think that there's a it's all mental with the free throw at that point and that in its own is its its own challenge but again it just comes back to the underhand free throw actually reduces a lot of the problems with the the overhand free throw for lack of a better term it, it just kind of slows the the ball's uh 
tra- trajectory, pardon me, to the hoop and gives it a little bit of a better angle, gives them a little bit of different way to control. It's kind of like a softball pitcher that throws the ball, flipping it backwards yeah, and up got, to the hoop. It gives it just a little bit more flow. It's got a softer touch too. It does. Yeah. It, it does. Yeah. It doesn't have a, uh, the arc is different the way that it's coming. You know, it's, it's on its downward arc in a different way. It's not gaining momentum. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of things that can happen there, but I think it's an interesting discussion. Uh, but it's not one of the the key components that usually hurts the Sacramento Kings. Although it did come back, free throw shooting did come back to bite them, and actually it has a couple of times in the last two weeks came back to bite them in the Chicago game. Uh, of course, the Kings missed three or four three uh, free throws in the final final uh, I don't know was it forty five seconds. And on top of that, Marcus Cousins intentionally tried to miss one. Um, he almost airballed the first one, and then he intentionally tried to miss a second, and he got called for a violation for not hitting the rim. So I guess it could actually in, cause some sort of issue with the Kings where, you know, maybe they should. And, you know, we had the hack of Rondo early in the season where teams were going at Rondo and just stopping the game. I'm not sure that I agree with that. And I, I actually think that was more... Uh, that was more warfare between Rick Carlisle than it was anything else. <laughs> yeah. I think that was Carlisle just trying to get in somebody's ear, uh, trying to get inside of, of Rondo's head for what happened last year. So so anyway, uh, that's something that's on the horizon. So make sure to listen to Adam Silver on the A to Z podcast, not to promote someone else's podcast repeatedly. Um, but, you know, if somebody gets Adam Silver, I'm going to promote their podcast. It's kind of the way it goes. Um, so we got some other news. Okay, so first of all, uh, it will come out later on Thursday, um, something I already know now, that uh, Omri Caspi will not be in the three-point shootout. He was snubbed. What are your thoughts on Omri Caspi not being part of All-Star Weekend and the three-point shootout? Well, what was George Carl part of the selection committee? Is, is, is that how it works? <laughs> oh, you're going there. Well, I mean, we, this is a basketball podcast. There was a game that was uh, a three-point game with, what, eight seconds left last night, and Omri Caspi, one of the team's best three-point shooters, actually the best three-point shooter, and uh, two of three on the night um, for a team where the players not named Omri Caspi or Marco Bellinelli went a combined one of ten from deep. I, I, I'm just noticing he wasn't on the floor, so I'm thinking there might just be some parallel there. Yeah, there might be some issue. Uh, I'm not sure uh, why George Carl decided not to use Omri Caspi in that situation, especially since Omri Caspi had hit a three from the top of the key just a few minutes earlier. He's also a guy who can get a three off where there's not a lot of space, and he can shoot from deeper than defenders like to defend a three-point shot. They think that he's not willing to shoot, but that's actually one of his preferred spots. It is. Like we've talked about this before, he's told me that he doesn't care how deep it is. Like he can he can shoot the same shot whether it's from twenty three feet or twenty nine feet as long as he's at the top, he he said the the distance doesn't bother him. He can change the he can adjust his sights for the uh, for the wind for the you know the uh, the different conditions that show up in an NBA game whether there's a wet spot on the floor or you know someone opened a door somewhere he can adjust accordingly like in mid flight. So, uh, so yeah, to me, I, I'm kind of shocked that Omri Caspi isn't in the three-point shootout. Uh, I think he has a international brand that I, that would have played well. He's shooting 44% from the field, from the three-point line on the season. He is one of the better three-point shooters in the league. Um, but I guess guys like, you know, Devin Booker just have more appeal because there are rookies on horrible teams that fire their coaches out of nowhere. Yeah, or something like that. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It, it would have been a great, and I think he would have been good at it because his the way he releases the ball, it's it's a little lower, and it almost if you picture a a rack of balls while he's out there shooting these thirty footers, the motion almost looks like he's picking up a ball off the rack and then flinging it really quick. Uh, so yeah, I think he would have actually been a he probably wouldn't have been a great um, or he wouldn't have been a favorite, and I think if you were betting, you would have gotten good odds on him. Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, you bring up the fact that he he brings it out low and and it, it's actually quick. When he was a young player, uh, it was it took so long. It took so long for him to get his three point shot off. That's something that he's worked on over the course of the last couple of years, where he's he's somehow figured out a way to speed up his release, and that's what's really helped him succeed in that in the long ball because 
he's getting it off. You know, he doesn't have to have uh, a lot of space, like what you said, but he also he can move quickly and and get through it. He's he's got a quick first step. He sets it up right, and uh, he's even working on a Marco Bellinelli fake that that Ooh. has had some intriguing, uh, you know, sort of. Surprised that, I'm surprised Marco Bellinelli's pump fake doesn't have its own Twitter account. <laughs> you know, that is a good question. Is there Marco Bellinelli's pump fake? Or like fake? a did Marco pump fake, and then it just says yes. It should just be Marco Bellinelli's pump fake. That That's actually a good Twitter uh, Twitter handle. Maybe we should run the Marco Bellinelli pump fake. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, Marco Bellinelli is now probably the Sacramento Kings starting shooting guard. Speaking of Marco Bellinelli... Uh, what are your thoughts on him as a starting shooting guard? Because kind of looks like he's more comfortable with Rondo, uh, number one. Number two, it kind of feels like somebody just pulled like a giant elephant off of Darren Collison and let him breathe for the first time in a couple of months. Uh, and it seems to have energized both players. Honestly, I, to me, it's like a number 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 on the list of things that the Kings, because like I was thinking about coming in this podcast, like, well, what do you do to talk about the Kings right now? Because there's so many different things that are messed up about them. And that's, I mean, no offense to your question. I, I to, to me, Marco played well, um, relatively, especially compared to the rest of the season. He got his feet set. Um, they've stopped running pin downs as much, maybe at all. And that's going to be key for him. But uh, this team has so many different problems. And I, I watched the discourse kind of in the media and on Twitter and in, in various places like Sacktown Royalty, uh, Cowbell Kingdom, things like that. I, I'm just kind of taken aback at like the different perspectives, like that this is either an effort thing or this is, you know, that this team's not good. You know, those types of things really, really just kind of make me scratch my head because, like, you know, hey, we're going to have a Super Bowl here this weekend. And let's just say that you had, you know, Tom Brady and the four greatest wide receivers of all time and a pass-blocking line that could just, you know, give him all the time in the world. And Bill Belichick, you know, decided to run the ball with his fourth-string running back, and they went into three yards in a cloud of dust, and they did not score a single point. Everybody in America would be rioting because of the obvious problem with their play calling. And the way that this system is set up is beyond ridiculous, and whether we're talking offense or defense, and the, the reason why I rail on the offense so much is it's something that's so easily changeable, and it could just have such a drastic impact on all facets of the game, defense included, to put the other team on their heels. We've talked about this stuff a million times, so I feel like it's not even worth bringing up. But that's where we're at with that particular aspect of the situation is they're sitting there running running plays when they've got a passing quarterback and four wide receivers and wondering why it's not working and why is the other team running down and scoring all these easy points? You know, why is our why is our team unable to defend? Well, you have a running team that's not particularly good at defending anyway, running a system that's giving wide open three point shots and wide open jumpers, the switching, nobody knows how to do it. And it's just kind of a mess. So I, I don't know where you go with that. If you're unwilling to look at the play calling, so to speak, you know, there's really no point in almost assessing it. Yeah. The guys could give more effort at times, but there's been times they've, they're giving plenty of effort and you know, Folks are coached almost now to say that they're not giving effort, that the defense is bad. You just hear the same thing over and over again. I don't see any progress being made on any of this stuff. And you talk to basketball people, you know, they're like, what are they doing? Basketball minds want to know. Actually, to be honest with you, uh, the Washington Redskins won a Super Bowl doing exactly what you're saying in the uh the uh -huh. 80s they, so with timmy timmy smith rushing for like 230 yards so you tell me there's a chance so i'm telling you there's a chance <laughs> um yeah i'm not gonna tell you there's a chance i do know that uh that there's frustration all around and that this team is still even when they're playing extremely well uh it still leaves you to wonder how they're playing extremely well and, you know, you and I talked about this. Uh, on occasion, when I leave a game, I'll, I'll call Aaron on the way home and we'll have long discussions about what we just saw. 
um, because I have an hour drive home after after Kings games, and I just feel like like the Kings have enough talent to get through quite a few things. They don't have enough talent to win, you know, fifty games, but they do have enough talent to survive many things. And what I found is over the last let's just look at this sample size of 10 games where the Kings, well, 11 games, where they won five in a row, then they lost four in a row, then they won one, then they lost one. If you look at that stretch, the only difference in my mind between the wins and the losses, because I don't think there was a single blowout in any one of those games. Uh, Maybe there was one where it was sort of out of hand, but the only real difference between those games, all of them, you just throw them all in one bucket, is in the wins, the Kings figured out ways to win down the stretch in the last three to four minutes of the game. In the losses, they made egregious errors and cost themselves. And, you know, really the margin of error is so slim with this team that it usually comes down to the last four or five minutes of a game, whether they will win or lose. And we're talking some of like the double overtime, all of the games. You just look at them and you say, okay, are they going to, are they going to hand the ball over again and again and again? Are they going to, again, to bring up the Chicago Bulls, uh, they missed three shots within two feet in the last minute and a half. They missed two three-pointers. They missed three free throws. And I think they had one or two turnovers. In a minute and a half, you can't win a game like that. They still only lost by five. And Chicago left them in the game the entire time. It's just, you have to be better than that. I would liken this to a video game where George Carl has has put the sliders all the way on to beyond hard, you know, to to a level that the video game doesn't even offer because offensively, you know, you look at what DeMarcus Cousins does standing at the top of the key. Once he puts the ball on the ground, you're you're turning him into a dribbler. And a dribbler has to be even better at negotiating different threats, steals, uh, traffic, etc. And when the offense, when it comes time for him to make his move, you're seeing what happens when he has to dribble against a set defense. It usually doesn't look good. Same thing with Rajon Rondo. With four guys camped out at the three-point line and an occasional screener, when he gets deep into the paint, there's nothing there. So the dribble, the dribble drive offense isn't producing anything for these guys. So everything is going to be harder. And that's why you have this conundrum of, well, they need to find a way to win it in the fourth quarter. They've either already had to come back by 20 or some ridiculous number and asking them to continue along that pace where they're 20 points better than the other team for three quarters. It's not a reasonable ask or they've been able to overperform and actually get that done. Or occasionally a team will cough it up and give it away and they're able to hold on and win. And that's why we're in this paradigm of the fourth quarter is this kind of mythological thing where they've got to, you know, bring it home so to speak and yeah a lot of NBA games are won in the fourth quarter and that's where guys make their money but it's not it doesn't have to be that way and what you're also seeing with this team is because of that system being so just unproductive they don't know how to to get it to DeMarcus in the post even at times so the post entry passes are bad there's a play where DeMarcus got the ball and I don't think he got good post position once last night against the Bulls. Partially, that's his fault. Um, I don't know because he's he's not supposed to be down there. Well, no, I but don't... when he is, though, I mean, partially it is his fault that he doesn't go down and get early post position and and get better post position. Because I, I I mean I watched and I'm like, okay, but he's he, not supposed to be beneath the three point line. Well, yeah, but he he is. I mean, when he goes down plays. and he sets up in the post, you're like, okay, I, I'm not okay with you being like you know, 12 feet away from the the basket, you, you probably, if you would have done a little bit of work earlier, you could have been, you know, seven or eight feet from the basket, maybe even a little tighter than that. And it would have been easier. And then there's other times where he pins guys down and he just puts his hands up and, you know, there he is. I, so. I, I didn't see him start a play on the block, like as, as an intentional starting point. That's, that's, I guess my point is, yeah, there's, there's times when it's like 14 seconds, 10 seconds left in the shot clock. And then he's like, down there for whatever reason he's like okay now it's time to post but then he has to like pop out and get the ball at 18 feet or he's got to get it nowhere near the block and that's not really a post touch but in in the 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 few times that he did get relatively good position he's getting a hard double 
and nobody on the Kings is reacting to the play. And Marco Bellinelli on one turnover where guys are like, oh, see, he can't post up. Marco Bellinelli has to swing to the top of the key, and I tweeted it, so just check my Twitter timeline. Yep. He has to swing up to the top of the three-point line, and instead of making it a skip pass through a double team, including another defender, it's an easy, wide-open bounce pass because nobody's standing at the three-point line in that region, and he gets a catch-and-shoot three, and that's the way that a post-offense works. But because these guys don't have that in their playbook, it's literally not a play in their playbook. They don't know how to run it other than to go based on their collective experience of this is how we've done post-entry with other teams or in the past. And so not only do you not have your most effective play being called, you know, and that's not just me talking, that's your buddies on the, on the, on the telecast. That's you. That's yeah. That's Michael Malone is on record saying, you know what? I don't like him shooting threes because it takes him away from where he's most effective. That's every scout I've talked to. That's every front office person I've talked to. That is every single person other than in the Sacramento bubble or in the George Carl kind of media camp, everybody's wondering why this isn't happening. So again, we're here talking about why is the offense so scatterbrained and why is the defense not there? It's hard to be a good defensive team when you're running for your life because that's the only way you can score points. And then the other team gets into that same running game with you. And you, you see guys like Etwan Moore oh, come in. And Every guy sets his career high against the Sacramento Kings. It's, well, it's, but it's been that way for like two decades. It's, it's easier to score when you've got players scattered across 94 feet of, of real estate versus five guys packed into the paint. Yeah, I mean, Tony Delph put 50 on the Kings one time. So I mean, you're saying it, you guys are cursed? It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean... George likes to take away what other teams does do best. And he even said last night, we took away their two best players. And they still smacked us around. Someone else figured out a way to beat us. You know, even when I remember back to the golden age of Sacramento Kings basketball, even that team, which had great shooters, great basketball IQ, great basketball, you know, like team camaraderie and everything, anytime Chris Weber caught the ball in the post, the entire team stood around mainly because they knew that they weren't going to get the ball, that it was over once it went in there, but that was it. Like Other teams started to key on that and just would go down and double him, and then the Kings stopped doing that. They started putting him at the elbow all the time and making Vlade go down in the post uh, and sort of taking away the interchangeability of those two because in transition, Weber was incredible, but when you got him in a set offense, other people knew he wasn't going to pass for the most part, and so what they would do is, is just you know, everyone else were just like, all right, well, I guess we're just going to hang out and wait and see what happens. Hopefully he hits it. So, I mean, this is a, a thing, uh, like a, it's still progressing. And, you know, George brought up something, uh, let me think, was it Tuesday, Tuesday practice? He said, how many games this season do you think we've had all of our players, all of our top nine? Mm. And I said, I don't know. I, I guess way low. I said like four or five. And he said, no. It's, it's higher than that, but it's 20, 20 games. And so once again, you have a team that hasn't been together very long and they've had all of these issues of not being able to stay healthy and get everyone on the court together to work these things out. And so, you know, even right now we're, we're just now, what are we? 40 something games into the season, 47 games, 48 games in the season. This is just now the point where Marco Bellinelli is stepping into the starting rotation into the starting lineup. And so now, once again, you are adjusting accordingly, and you're you're changing his role completely from what he was doing, you know, a week ago. And Darren Collison is his role has changed completely as to what he was doing a week ago, because now he is the primary in the second unit. And so we're starting to see this team again trying to figure itself out mid mid season, you know, sort of midstream. They've got to figure something else out. So it's just a really difficult thing to kind of wrap your head around. But I think, unfortunately, the pressure that the Kings have put on themselves to make the playoffs, it will win out at the end of the day, as opposed to the Kings being patient and saying, this is the first year of eight guys being together, nine guys. Our rotation, however many the rotation is, nine guys, ten guys, Half of those players are new to this team. Half of them bring sort of a 
a skill set that the Kings did not have before. If you look at Rondo, the Kings have never had someone like Rondo. They've never had a Bellinelli. They've never had a Costa Kufis. You know, comparisons to Jason Thompson are just completely wrong. He is a legitimate, you know, he he's a center. Jason Thompson was more of a power forward. He, he thrived in that position more. Um, you know what, but my point is like, you're trying to fit in pieces. Uh, the Kings have never had a Willie Cauley-Stein. That group of players have never had someone like that. And so you're trying to put them all in the in the same pot, but again, we keep pulling them out and putting them back in, pulling them out and putting them back in. And it's it's caused, you know, some major chemistry on, on the court issues. And then you bring up your systematic is, issues. And, you know, sure, there are some glaring things that I think and you think that the Kings could do differently with their system. But either way, this was going to be a process. There are going to be five game win streaks and four game losing streaks and then a win and a loss and and then you go on the road and you don't you have no idea. I mean the Kings have a four game road trip. They could go three and one, they could go oh and four, they could go four and oh, they could go two and two. You have no idea what this team can do on a nightly basis because they are still learning each other. They are still learning a system that they it, it's completely foreign to almost all of them. The, the defensive, I mean, even we had Corliss on the podcast. Corliss said, I've never seen a defense like this. And he played in the league for 13 years. He's coached for another three or four. I mean, he's never seen it. And so these are things that will take time to learn. And, you know, maybe it will take time to unlearn them as well if this isn't the direction the Kings go after this season. But when you're in it, you got to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with the defense is it's such an instinctual uh it's a very difficult, obviously the, their scores are 100 plus to 100 plus per game because you can't stop guys. It's um, it's going to be practically impossible for them to change to a hedge and recover or a trapping system off of the pick and roll. I, I would recommend that they do it because right now teams know that the minute that the ball handler crosses the pick that they can rise and fire and it's going to result in an open three or if you want to just move these guys through a lot of different screens that you're going to get confusion and you're going to get an open jumper that way. So I would, in that respect, at least try to turn away the ball handler so teams get something different. But well, again... What, well, George says, like, his he's old school and that the first thing you protect is is the paint. And then you work from this there. Isn't, this isn't an old school system, though. This is a new school... <laughs> we want you to shoot long twos and we want to make sure that you don't get into the paint. So we're going to protect the three point line and we're going to protect the paint. But what's happening is that the big men, their, their minds, when the ball, everybody runs screen or all against bigs because it works and their mind in their minds, they're thinking, drop back, drop back, drop back, give up the long two, give up the long two. But what happens is next thing you know, they're at the three point line and they can't differentiate between somebody shooting a three or a long two, they're going to sit back, especially for a guy like DeMarcus Cousins, who's a bigger guy who right now has like 15 different injuries, who's not dogging it, people. You know, stop putting out DeMarcus Cousins highlight reels that you think look like James Harden highlight reels. They're not. Like this guy hyperextended both knees and has what? And had an ankle injury. Five different ankle injuries. And had, yeah, like five or six different rolls of the ankle. And is playing the most minutes on the team most nights. And and he switched shoes. He did switch shoes. That's good. Yeah, and so it's like, I mean, come on now. But he's going to, he's not going to be as active on the perimeter. And Willie Cauley-Stein, who needs to be in the game 30 minutes a game. If you're going to talk about the team didn't play defense and you're not going to play Willie Cauley-Stein, I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. Um, he, his one weakness is, is getting up on outside shooters. That's got to be coached into him. Yeah. That system, though, is lending itself to all, of, all sorts of chaos because they're not doing anything right out of it. They're not protecting the paint. They're not protecting the three. They're not protecting the mid-range J. It's just a mess. If you show and go, I think you get a little something out of it. But, but the point is, is that stuff's not going to change the, the Kings' trajectory. They're not going to all of a sudden become a lockdown defensive team because they pull those levers. I think they'll be better. Yes, they might they might get five extra points per game or per per 100 possessions on defense if they make those changes, but it's offensively when you can just do something as simple as hey, instead of running this handball offense, I don't know if anybody go check out what a handball game looks like. That's what the the dribble drive offense looks like right now. We're going to put it into the league's premier post player 
that's an easy decision that can be made in the middle of a game or during an all-star break or on the plane to the next game. Like you don't have to, there's not a lot of thinking involved with that. Everybody's done it at one point in time in their career. If you coach it up a little bit, you can start to get guys cutting in the right spots, spotting up in the right spots. And the whole thing changes over. It, it changes overnight. All right. So, so let's talk about, uh, we don't even need to talk about this. I'm going to throw out some numbers to you. Uh, the Kings are third in the NBA at 106.6 points per game. Their last in points surrendered at 108.1. I'm actually, if you told me the Kings would be, what are they, 20 and 29, something like that, 20, 21 and 28. If you told me they're going to be 21 and 28 and that they would have a 1.5 point differential, I would tell you that's crazy because that that 1.5 point differential actually tells you the Sacramento Kings are a much, much better team than their record. Uh, but here's here's some of the other things, Aaron. Uh, they are 11th in offensive rating at 105.7. Defensive rating, they're at 107.2. They're 21st in the league in defensive rating. They're really not as bad as you think. And even George Carl brought something up the other night which I keep bringing up things that George is bringing up. And of course, George is bringing these things up, so I will talk about them and write about them, which, you know, it's kind of the way it works. But uh, George said, hey, look, we're really not that bad at defending the three-point line. And I thought to myself, yes, you are. But (laughs) he's actually kind of right. No, I know what you mean. They're 19th in the league at three-point percentage against at 35.8%. That's not great, right? That that percentage isn't, it's not like, oh my gosh, you're averaging, you know, you're holding teams to 35.8% shooting. But when you consider that they played the Golden State Warriors four times, that's actually really not that bad. My point is, they're 30th in attempts against. Yeah, that's and, the big one right And there. makes. And so it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you walk into Sacramento and your game plan, you think, oh, they're horrible at shooting the three, at defending the three, then your offensive game plan automatically says, let's get guys open for three-pointers. Now, again, the Kings are leaving people open for three-pointers. That's why this sort of this issue happened in the beginning. It's the uh, the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken. Uh, it, it's the reason. But now what we're seeing is every team come in and like, ah, oh, we're chucking because we can, because they are not going to defend us. And that's kind of where it, it's going. And so, I mean, again, their numbers aren't really as bad as you think they would be. And there's actually potential. There's potential if they have another run like what they had in the five-game win streak where their defensive efficiency was through the charts, I mean, off the charts, then they have the potential to get down to number 16, to number 17 in the league in defensive rating. This is where the money gets made in this discussion right here. And, and I, I'm hearing people say that this team doesn't have talent. And what I'm saying is what we're doing with this team here is we're seeing them run with their fourth string running back behind a pass blocking line, Tom Brady, Jerry Rice, and, and, and five Hall of Fame wide receivers. They're good enough to overcome that. That's why you see the offensive and defensive ratings where they're at while looking so bad while having a point differential that doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. I forget, what is that, the Chewbacca defense? None of this makes sense. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you run an up-tempo system, you're conceding certain things. You're conceding defense. You're conceding the glass. Guys leak out. And and what you get are high-percentage shots because fast-break offense is generally done right around the rim. The concession for for that nice-looking statistic is that your defense is going to slip. But you've got DeMarcus Cousins and and Willie Cauley-Stein, who could easily be the best defensive tandem in the league. I I mean, I'm really struggling to think of one that's better. If he's engaged, and he's not right now, Rajon Rondo can be a decent defender. Darren Collison can be a decent defender. Ben McLemore, if he's not completely confused by the system can be a decent on ball defender. There are elements of a good defensive system in the, in, in play here, but these numbers are artificial. You, you cannot say, Oh, you know, yay, we're number 11 in offense, 
but ignore the fact that the defensive glass is left open, that teams run all over you back in the other direction. If you can clean this up, so, so the Warriors have all these great players. Everybody tries to be them. The Kings aren't the Warriors. I mean, they aren't news, breaking news here. They're not. So if it's not there on the break, you go into a secondary offense and that secondary offense can have principles and you can put those principles into play and then you can turn around and get back on defense. And the game doesn't have to be like watching a Kings game is like, it's kind of the crazy, it's the craziest game to watch in the NBA. You don't see anything else like it except for the Warriors, but the Warriors are doing it in a different way because they're, they're just destroying teams and it's the Steph Curry show, but it has that same vibe. It's like the Warriors, whatever the, the, um, the, the bad liquor equivalent is <laughs> like the, the Warriors the old, drunk uncle. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like, if, if this is like, you know, Crystal is the Warriors. You know, the Kings are like some old E40. <laughs> it's like, really? That's not, that's not good. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. You know what I mean, though. So let's, let's get past this uh, this offensive-defensive quandary thing. Uh, we got the NBA trade, trade deadline coming up. Uh, we may actually not see the same team come back that leaves. The Kings are on the road for four straight. Then they have the All-Star break. And then February 18th is a trade deadline. Um, let's play, let's, uh, buyers or sellers where let, let, number one, are the Kings buyers or sellers at this point in your opinion? I think they're buyers. And I, I really, I mean, all indications are is that Carl's job is safe through the end of the year. I've heard from now three good sources that never miss that if he doesn't make the playoffs, he's not going to be the coach of the Sacramento Kings. I know that hasn't been reported, but you know, Hey, you keep I, saying I'm it a, here. I'm, I'm reporting it now. And so the uh, that in its own makes it kind of interesting because if if the Kings lose a couple more games, now their their playoff prospect prospects get really dim. So how would you then be buyers um, going into the All Star break? Say they lose four in a row, maybe this changes. Maybe they become sellers at that point. But Demarcus Cousins isn't getting traded, and I don't even think Rudy Gay is getting traded. So I don't know what kind of sellers they could be. So I do think they're buyers. And the question is, is can they find the right fit? Okay, I'm going to say the same thing. I'm going to say they're buyers. They will try to make a move to improve this team. Now, that could mean that Ben McLemore's on his way out. It could mean that Marco Bellinelli or or even, heaven forbid, Costa Cufas, someone like that. Uh, I, I don't think that Rudy Gay is going to be on his way out the door. Um, but let, let's get to individual players, and we'll go back and forth. Uh, come... February 18th, is Marco Bellinelli still a Sacramento King? Yes. I think so, too. I think the Kings know that you can't find shooters on the open market. You just can't. Uh, you can't bring in someone who's going to be able to lift you up on that aspect of the game uh, better than Bellinelli. Everyone wants to buy low on him, uh, and they're hoping the Kings will sell low. And they're offering the Kings nothing. So I'm going to say he stays. Um, Rudy Gay, is he a Sacramento King? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Um, I'm going to say yes as well. Uh, I spoke to Rudy Gay after the media scrum. He was walking out of the locker room. And uh, he and I had a conversation. I asked him, uh, what do you make of the rumors? He said, it's part of the business, but... 98% of all of these things are completely false. I said, have you spoken to Vlade Divac about the rumors? And is he communicating with you with what the plan is? He said, yes, we have had multiple discussions on what is going on and what is not, what is real, what isn't. I'm in a good spot. I believe I will be here. And so that is where Rudy Gay thinks he is. And I think it would take a holy cow, I can't believe they just offered up that for, you know, again, if Washington wants to come at the Kings with Bradley Bill or Orlando wants to come at the Kings with Victor Oladipo plus something and say, well, we'll take Rudy Gay off your hands, I think the Kings listen. But I don't think there are a lot of other uh, deals that 
you know, anyone is going to piece together that would make sense for the Kings and make them go out and, and trade Rudy Gay. Um, okay, so outside of those two, I guess Ben McLemore. Is Ben McLemore a Sacramento King after February 18th? I'm going to go with no. I'm not, I haven't heard anything. I don't know anything specific, but he's the asset. He's the guy that's going to have value to another GM. The other other teams around the league are going to look and think, what did they do to this guy? And they're going to think that they can make him something else. And that in its own, I think, gives Kings fans some hope for some relief because I don't think a lot of relief is coming in any event. But, you know, hopefully it doesn't come in the form of somebody like Aaron Aflalo, but instead somebody like a Courtney Lee or, um, you know, Tabo Cephalosha we've discussed. In players of that ilk, I think you could easily get for a Ben McElmore. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree. If there is a player traded, I believe that Mclemore is pretty high on the list of players that the Kings would trade, and it's not because he's useless or anything else. I actually think he's he's played he played much better the other night with Darren Collison, uh, and I just don't think he fits in the starting lineup because he's not aggressive enough and because. Somewhere along the way, I believe his teammates lost faith in his ability to shoot the three-point shot, which they shouldn't have, or he's just not getting open in in uh, the offensive sets at the at the three-point line. Like Bellinelli knows how to get open, and that quickly has become you know sort of the a reason why he doesn't make sense with the starters. Makes sense running and gunning with Collison and Omri Caspi in the second unit. I get that. Uh, but yeah, I kind of feel like there's a good chance that if there is a deal out there that improves the Kings at all at the shooting guard position, that, that Ben McElmore will be swapped out for a more veteran presence player. So, uh, that would be my guess there. All right. Outside of that, Aaron, do you think there are any other deals? No, no. I mean, nothing, um, nothing comes to mind that is exceedingly obvious, um, yeah, I almost, I kind of hope, I, I don't really think that they should just trade Ben McElmore for nothing. I think that he deserves, from an evaluation standpoint, one more uh, crack at, at some sort of stability. I don't think this situation is a lot of stability for him. Um, but I do think that if you're the Kings, he's not like untradeable. Uh, you just kind of go look at what exactly they get back in return. Yeah, and I think the Kings would be more in tune to trade him now as opposed to later because as of right now he's still been a starter for them for a while and so he has that on his resume he doesn't miss games he's only missed one game now in his entire pro career uh and and so i kind of feel like there there might be a concern that his trade value will plummet if they don't keep him but i'm just going to point out it has not gained any value with with uh george carl as his head coach he's not working out with george carl and that's it's part of the young player thing it's part of the offensive system or the defensive system being complex uh whatever it is it it hasn't they there's no synergy there between coach and player and so i think that is a good reason to believe that he could be on his way out as well that they believe that his value is only going to decrease whatever value he does have is only going to decrease if he stays in uh, on this team any much much longer, and so they may cash out the value. All right, so Aaron, uh, I think that's going to do it. Um, you know, we've been droning on for a while here, like always. Um, what are your final thoughts? What do you got? Kings got to turn it around before the All Star break, and if you're going to make big changes, whatever changes they may be, the All Star break is a great time to make changes because it's an expanded All All Star break. Yes, guys go on vacation, but. I think for a team with the lofty goals of making the playoffs, I think that they might be able to make a little additional time to make whatever changes might be needed. Changes. <laughs> the uh, the NBA does not allow the Kings to meet as a group until I think it's the Wednesday after players have no responsibilities to come back to Sacramento. So uh, they will have like a day or two to implement some things. Um, but this is the NBA season. It's on the fly. There is no stop and wait and let us put all these ingredients together. It, it just doesn't work out that way, which is unfortunate. Um, I am going to say uh, thank you to Sam Amick for coming in and dropping some cool knowledge. 
especially the Adam Silver stuff. Um, Kings fans, hang in there. I know it's been a rough roller coaster ride. Uh, I think I think they've got a good shot here on this four game road trip to actually pick up a game or two that they've lost. Uh, they're of course, you know, they have the Nets. I think they have the Cavs. They have some winnable games, some losable games. Um, the Boston Celtics always seem to play them hard. So uh, Rajon Rondo's return to Boston should be intriguing. Isaiah Thomas versus his old team should be intriguing. So that's on the horizon. So, uh, you know, look out for all of the King stuff that's coming. It should be an interesting week, uh, especially, you know, leading up to the All-Star break. And uh, then you get to see DeMarcus Cousins go play in the Big Man Skills Challenge. And you get to see DeMarcus Cousins celebrated as an All-Star, which is always cool. Um, So... That's going to do it for this edition of the CSN Kings Insider Podcast. For Aaron Bruski, I am James Ham. Have a good day.